through the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. As we continue our uh, verse-by-verse study of this Gospel. Uh, Luke chapter 1. This morning we are coming face-to-face with mystery. Uh, There is a great deal of mystery as we think about this passage. We've already looked at this passage over a couple of sermons, but this morning we're looking at the heart of the mystery, namely that God himself would come to earth as a human being and that he would do so by being born to a virgin. Mystery is good for us. Okay? It's good for us. Mystery humbles us. It reminds us that we are not God. There are no mysteries to God. God understands all. God comprehends all. It all makes sense to him. When we find that we talk about something that befuddles us, confuses us, confounds us, it is just a little reminder from your maker. You're the creature, not the creator. So be humble, know who you are, and trust the creator. Uh, Mystery is good for us because it causes us to stand in awe of God. Uh, Have you ever seen the pictures that come back from uh, NASA's probes out in space? And you see these pictures, these amazing, colorful pictures of these uh, galaxies and solar systems and supernovas. And, and you just look at them and you don't understand everything that's going on there. Nobody yet understands everything that's going on there. And yet you stand in all of it. Um, you look out over the oceans, Right. And there's a lot of mystery to the ocean. There's a lot that we don't understand about what's there and what isn't and why it works the way it does. But you don't have to understand it all. You stand in awe of it and you worship. So as we approach a subject like the virgin birth of Christ, there is a sense in which we should seek to learn and try and understand something about it. But there's also a sense in which you should just stand in awe of the mystery and worship. Now, this mystery is particularly good for us because it is a mystery that has to do with our Savior. I hope there is no other subject in this world that you like thinking about more than your Savior, the one who I hope is dearest to your soul, the one that I hope is most precious to you because of what he has done for you and how he loves you. There are a lot of things in this world that should thrill your heart. There are a lot of things in this world that I hope you find fascinating. Nothing should fascinate you. Nothing should thrill your soul more than the God-man Jesus Christ. And so I hope that you love learning about our Savior. And so when it comes to this subject, we should seek to know all that the Bible tells us about the incarnation and the virgin birth. And then there's a point where we have to stop. And we say that's as much as the Bible tells us, and we should not expect to know or understand more. Unfortunately, a lot of error 
has come into certain denominations and parts of the Christian church as people begin to speculate and start to try and unravel the mystery of the virgin birth. And they threw in some ideas, they threw in some thoughts that they thought were going to help it clarify the virgin birth, and instead it ended up leading to false teaching. And so we have to know where the line is. Here's what the Bible says, we embrace it, we love it, we believe it. Don't try and go further in explaining what is incomprehensible. Deuteronomy 29, 29 The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever, that we may do all the words of the law. So there are secret things that belong to God. We need to respect God's privacy on those things. And then all that he has revealed is for us. Let's look at our text. Let's begin reading in verse 31. Verse 31, this is the very word of God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, the power of the Most High will overshadow you, therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Well, as we think about the mystery of the virgin birth, we have to start by thinking about the miracle of the incarnation. So everybody say incarnation. Incarnation. I think most everybody knows this word, but we don't use it a lot. So I think it's helpful for us to hear it and think about it. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about this act of God in which the Son of God became a man In order to save sinners, the son of God became a man in order to save sinners. Let's clarify a few things about that miracle. Number one, only the son of God became a man. So when we say God became man, we're not saying that all the persons of the Trinity became a man. The father did not become a man. The Holy Spirit did not become a man. The Bible never speaks of the Father or of the Spirit as being human. God is one God, three distinct persons, and yet still one God. These different persons fulfill different roles. It was the Son and only the Son who fulfilled the role of becoming a man. You say, Justin, explain the Trinity to me. Well, we're going to try. Uh, and next time we have Wednesday night, okay, that's where we are, is we'll be discussing the doctrine of the Trinity. It is mystery. We will not be explaining the Trinity. But we will at least help us to clarify what it is we believe and kind of show where it differs from some false views that have been brought into the church over the history of Christianity. So let's be clear. It was the Son of God, the second person.
person of the Trinity who was incarnated and born of a virgin. The second thing we need to note here is that the Son of God did not lose or alter his divine nature, but simply added human nature to it. The Son of God did not lose his divine nature when he became a man. It is not as if Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, said, okay, I'm going to become a man. So up to this point, for all eternity past, I've been God. I'm now going to stop being God. And I'm going to give up my godness and become a man. That is not what the Bible teaches. And when Jesus walked on this earth as the son of God, he was still fully, purely, 100% God. And he always will be. Moreover, he didn't alter his divine nature. He didn't transform in some way his divine nature. We know this because the Bible tells us over and over again that God does not change. The Son of God, as God, does not change. Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. That's pretty clear. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. One more, Psalm 102. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. They will pass away, but you are the same, and your years have no end. Any view of what happened at Christmas time that makes you think that somehow the Son of God changed in his nature has to be a false view. God does not change. So then what did happen to the Son of God in the incarnation? He simply added human nature to his divine nature. Uh, Philippians 2 puts it this way, beginning in verse 6. Though he was in the form of God... He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, held on to, made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, in the early days of the Christian church, there was a group of people called Docetist. Everybody say docetist. Okay. These people coming from Greek philosophy, Plato, Socrates, especially Plato, this was their view. Everything spiritual is good. Everything material and physical is evil. Therefore, it would not have been right for the Son of God to become an actual physical human being. That would be God putting evil on himself because they believe that everything physical is evil. And so they argued that Jesus simply appeared in human flesh, that when people saw him as a human being, it was kind of like an optical illusion. It was the, the form in which Jesus presented himself, but that he never was really human. Uh, they believed physical human bodies were inherently sinful. They could not believe that the Son of God would actually have a physical 
body. When the Bible talks about the sins of the flesh or the sins of the body, it is never actually talking as if there is sin in your skin. Okay? Can we be clear about that? Sin is in the human heart and not the organ. Okay? Sin is in the, the inner person of a man or a woman. Physical bodies are not evil. Your physical body today is affected by the fall. It ages. It hurts. Sometimes you feel like it's evil because it's being mean to you, right? But your physical body is not an evil thing. You are created as both body and soul, and God intends for you to be both body and soul for all eternity. So physical bodies are not bad things. The Bible does not say Jesus simply appeared as a man. He actually was a man. Mary did not give birth to an optical illusion. Mary gave birth to a physical, material, human child. He was a true man. Now, the docetists would point to what I just read from Philippians 2, and they would say, wait a minute. Read it carefully. The verse said, and being found in human form, they would say, see, it doesn't say that Jesus became human. It says he was found in human form. But the answer to that is to look at the whole passage, because before that, it also said he had been in the form of God. In other words, form here doesn't mean taking the shape or appearance of. It means being what we're talking about. Jesus was God and is God. And being God, being in the form of God, he nevertheless took on the form of man. He did not set aside his godness. He did not alter or put away his godness, but remaining God, he added to himself this new kind of existence as a human being. And so the scriptures are very clear that Jesus is both 100% God and then added to that is this new kind of existence where he is now also a true human being. And so we read of Jesus being born as a real baby. We read of Jesus growing up the way children do. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus being tired, Jesus being thirsty, Jesus being hungry. We read of Christ uh, eating food. He experienced genuine physical pain. We see him with human emotions. We find him weeping. We find Jesus singing. Matthew 8.10, we find Christ marveling at the faith of a servant. And so he's, he's able to marvel at things the way humans do. Jesus experienced temptation. He certainly experienced a genuine physical death. The nails pierced real skin. Uh, there was real tissue there. Jesus shed real human blood. All of these things teach us that Jesus really was a true, full human being. And so here's a great truth that we need to make sure we understand. When we say things like the son of God descended from heaven to become a man, we don't actually mean he came down as if heaven's up there somewhere and Jesus just vertically moved himself and came down. That's not what we mean by descended. What we mean is he humbled himself as the God of the universe to take on such a lowly form. 
to add to his great, glorious, divine nature something as frail and fragile and meek as a human existence. That God himself, who is all-powerful, would take on this existence as a weak human being utterly dependent on this teenage mother for life. That's the idea of him descending. It's that God so humbled himself in that way. Imagine a great king who goes into a nursery and then he gets down on the level of those little kids. And that great king who otherwise people would tremble. You know, the king's on his throne. People come into the room and they tremble before that king. He is, he's a mighty king. He's a, he's a king of great power and justice. And, and yet then that king goes into this nursery, these little ones, and the king rolls around on the floor with the little kids and plays with them and interacts with them. And you see, wow, you know, this, this king, he really is willing to go down to their level. Well, our king, our God, who is glorious and all-powerful and remains so... Nevertheless, came where he could engage with us on our level as a human being in the midst of weakness and frailty and fragility. And then the other thing we need to make sure we're very clear on when it comes to the incarnation is this. The divine nature of the Son of God, which he's always had, the divine nature, he's God, and the human nature that he took on to himself in the incarnation, these never mix. These never uh, get scrambled together. Jesus has two natures, one person. Mystery. Okay? Two natures, one person. Fully God, fully man. His divinity never interferes with his humanity. His humanity never interferes with his divinity. We have to hold these two truths together. As we study the Gospel of Luke you're going to see something interesting. You're going to see that the boy Jesus has to learn things. He has to grow in understanding and wisdom. And you might say, I don't, I don't understand. I thought he was God. Doesn't God have infinite knowledge? Doesn't God have infinite wisdom? Well, how can Jesus have to learn if he already has infinite? Well, in his divinity, as the son of God, he absolutely knows everything. But as Jesus walked this earth... He did so in his identity, in his uh, nature as a, as a human being. And his divine nature never interfered with that. He, he didn't cheat. He came as a real man and he had to start from zero with learning and growing and understanding. Even as he works miracles. This is, those people don't understand this. This is really important actually to reading the Gospels well. When Jesus is performing miracles, he's not doing so in his divinity. He's doing so as a man trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And that it's through the Holy Spirit that Jesus as a man performs those miracles. And so we need to understand that the divinity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus, those don't get scrambled together. Don't be a, a, all these words, a Eutychian. Everybody say Eutychian. Okay, it's a very old ancient teaching that used to say that the, the divinity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus got all scrambled together. And uh, it causes all kinds of problems. Don't go there. Another part about the, uh, the incarnation. When the Son of God, fully God, took on the form of a human being, added human nature to himself. 
He did so once and for all time. There will never be a day when the Son of God takes humanity now off of himself. When God, the Son of God, chose to become a man, he chose to become a man forever, for all eternity. And you should be glad because your salvation hinges on that. Your salvation hinges on there being a son of Adam, a mediator who was a human being between God and man, who for all eternity intercedes and stands before God for you. Even when you're in heaven, it will be because of the intercession of the man, Jesus Christ, who sustains you and upholds you there. And so Jesus is a man forever. Some proof of this, uh, I'll just read you a few passages in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 9, that some people think that when Jesus went up to heaven, when he ascended, he stopped being a man, that that was the end of his humanity when he ascended into heaven. Absolutely not. Acts chapter 1, verse 9, he has just ascended into heaven, and when he had said these things and they were looking on, he was lifted up, a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go. There is going to be a real bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When Jesus returns, he will return as a glorified human being, but still nevertheless, a human being. Uh, Philippians 2 talks about how Jesus took on the form of a servant, how Jesus took on human flesh and became a true human being. Later in Philippians chapter 3, there is verse 20, which says this. Our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, listen to this, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. So what does Jesus have still today? A human body, now glorified. And one day your frail, broken, aching human body will know what it is to have a glorified body like his. And we could go on and on with more proofs about that. Another thing we need to say about this miracle of the incarnation is that it absolutely was essential if any sinner was going to be saved. The incarnation had to happen if we were going to be made right with God because the whole issue between God and man, the whole reason there's this wall and this this dividing line that keeps God and man separated has to do with a covenant that God made with man. God made a covenant with mankind through Adam in the garden. You know it. Adam, obey me and you will be eternally blessed. Adam, disobey me and you will be eternally cursed. And Adam, as our federal head, as our representative in the garden, broke that covenant and we are now part of a guilty race. You are born into a criminal race. You are born into a a group of people who have already acted in rebellion against the king of the universe. And according to the covenant that was made with God in the garden, we all deserve to be punished. And so if we're going to somehow be saved from that, there has to be a man who comes and makes a way 
for that covenant to be fulfilled. A man who comes and and honors God obediently and perfectly on behalf of us because we can't do it. Amen? We can't do it. We've, we've tried. We cannot live the perfect life that God has called us to live. We can't do it. So, so we got to have somebody that comes in and on behalf of us lives the perfect life we failed to live. This is why Jesus came. God came as a human being to keep the covenant on our behalf. I hope it doesn't make you nervous when I tell you, dear Christian, you are saved by works. You are saved by works. You are saved by Jesus coming and on your behalf, fulfilling every good work for you. He accomplishes all straight A's. That's the requirement. And then when you believe on him, his straight A's are put on your report card before God. You're saved by grace alone through faith alone as you rest in Christ and his works are applied to your account. Moreover, the incarnation simply had to happen because the distance between God and man is so great. In the book of Job, we find Job talking about this. And Job says, how can I even begin to relate to a God who's so different from me? How can I even begin to to interact with a God who is so, he's holy, he's holy, holy, holy. Uh, We are lowly creatures. He is infinite in wisdom and knowledge and power and might. We are physical beings. He is a pure spirit. How can we even interact with this God? Job 9.32, he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on us both. Job is crying out. He says, is there not someone who can put one hand on God and one hand on us and bring us together? And Jesus in the incarnation is the fulfillment of that desire. He is the God man. He takes all that is glorious about God and all that is meek and fragile in us. And he brings them together in one person. You will know the Father in a glorious way in heaven, but you will only know the Father through the Son. You understand that? The Father is too glorious, too great. The Son of God and His divinity is too glorious and too great. You would never be able to truly know them or commune with them were it not for God becoming a man in the person of Jesus Christ. So just to review then, the incarnation was the Son of God becoming a man in order to save sinners. Only the Son of God became a man. The Son of God did not lose or alter His divine nature. He simply added a human nature to it. These divine and human natures remain isolated from one another. They do not intermix. The Son of God will continue as a God-man for all eternity. And the incarnation was absolutely essential for our salvation. That's the introduction to the sermon. Now we'll talk about the virgin birth, okay? Okay. Not really. The truth is there's such mystery about the virgin birth that I can't say a whole lot about it, right? I have to know where the limits are. So just a few truths then about the virgin birth. The virgin birth was foreshadowed and promised in the Old Testament. This glorious truth... That God would walk and be present among his people 
was certainly foreshadowed in the Old Testament. What was the tabernacle? What was the temple? It was this glorious truth of God has come down and is dwelling in the midst of his people. And all of that was pointing to Christ. There's a reason why every decoration in the tabernacle, every ornamentation of the temple, it was all ordained by God to point to images of Christ, to point to to the kind of person he would be. When John says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, it's literally the word tabernacle. It's the word became flesh and tabernacles among us. Okay. So already in the Old Testament, with the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood and the sacrifices, it's all pointing to the truth of the incarnation, that one day God is going to become a man and dwell among his people. But not just the incarnation, the truth that God would become a man by being born to a virgin girl was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's a verse we read a lot of times at, at Christmas time. It's Isaiah 7. Uh, Verse 14, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. What's the miracle? A virgin shall conceive. That's not how conceiving happens, but it's going to happen. A virgin shall conceive. And then what does that mean? Well, she's going to have a child who will be called Emmanuel, God with us. A virgin child, a virgin born child, would be something new in this world. A child with no earthly biological father. Uh, We talked a little bit uh, Wednesday night, I think, about the announcement this week by these group of folks. I believe it was in China. And they have taken the um, genes of two female mice and created a baby female mouse. That is, they were able to reproduce, able to create a baby mouse with two parents, both moms. No male genes needed. And immediately people in the more uh, progressive liberal side of things were, were rejoicing saying, look, this shows that now you don't have to have men and women together to make children anymore. Um, some of the extreme feminists were saying, we can have a world without men at all. Okay, uh, So interesting things coming out of, of that study. So has it ever happened in history where there has been a child without a biological father? Up until last week, I would have said it's never happened. Apparently there's been a mouse. Okay, Apparently there's been a mouse. But even that was scientific, genetic, you know, manipulation, nothing miraculous there, certainly nothing natural there. What we have here is something absolutely different in the world. A baby conceived in the womb of a young woman by simply a declaration of God. Because this is a new creation, this is my understanding of how this happened. This is as close to speculating as we're going to get. I think that just as God in creation said, let there be, and there was, 
This language of the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary. Remember in Genesis 1, we have God speaking, let there be, and then we read about the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's there, what, hovering over the waters of the deep, right? The Holy Spirit seems to somehow be involved in bringing about what God was decreeing. Let there be, the, let there be light, and the Spirit somehow involved in bringing light, right? Uh, let there be land, and the Holy Spirit is somehow involved in out of nothing, making land, right? And so here we have God and his will and his decree saying, let there be a child in the womb of Mary. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Mary and, and by ex nihilo, out of nothing, the sheer force of divine power. There's a conceived child in the womb of Mary. We do not believe anything like the occults that we talked about on Wednesday evenings who have these ideas of God becoming a divine angelic being and having physical intimacy with Mary in order to bring this about. The Bible says nothing along those lines. Rather, the picture is one, I think, based on the rest of Scripture, of God simply decrees, and there it is. Nothing is impossible with God. Uh, Jesus was truly the son of Mary, that is, there would have been Mary's genes and DNA in, in Jesus. Uh, Genesis 3.15, go all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring or seed and her offspring or seed is the, is the word there. So all the way back in Genesis 3.15, we're promised that there's going to be this seed of the woman. That there's going to be this offspring of the woman who will crush the serpent. And so, yes, Jesus really was Mary's child. Galatians 4.4. 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. And so Jesus was the miraculous, uh, Jesus in his human nature was the miraculous creation of, of the spoken word of God. Let there be, and in the womb of Mary, there was a son. Now to be born with both um, uh, divine origin and Mary's genes and, and DNA. And there's not really much else I can say. Except it's amazing. It's mysterious. But there's two lessons we can draw. And so we'll draw them very quickly. Number one, this is what Gabriel tells Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. It confounds me. Did you know that the, the virgin birth seems to be the miracle that more Christians are willing to disbelieve than just about any other? I have spoken to many ministers who affirm the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, but even the minister doesn't believe in the virgin birth. Polls and surveys show us that many people in American culture, if you ask them, is there a heaven? Yes. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Yes. Was he born of a virgin? I don't know about that one. And I, I don't quite understand why that's the hang-up. Because if you can believe in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, he speaks and then, boom, there was. If you can believe Genesis 1-1, what's the hang-up with the idea that Jesus could be born of a virgin? Some people point out that the virgin birth is only mentioned a couple of times in the Bible. Matthew mentions it. Luke mentions it. Paul never mentions the virgin birth. 
And they'll say, see, it must not be true. It's only mentioned twice. How many times does the Bible have to say something before it becomes true? Right? If the Bible says it once, aren't we obligated to believe it if we believe this is the word of God? It is a dangerous thing to pick and choose which parts of the Bible you want to accept as true. Either the Bible is all the word of God or it is not the word of God. To place ourselves as judges of scripture where we can stand over the Bible and affirm these parts and, 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 and uh, deny those parts. That is to put ourselves in a place of pride over the Bible that we are not giving. In fact, the Bible stands over us. We will be judged and we will have to give an account on the last day for what we did with the word of God. Romans 3 verse 4, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Let God be found true, though every man be found a liar. Now here's my question for you. If you do believe in the virgin birth, if you do believe in the miracle working God for whom nothing is impossible, are you living that way? That is, are you living in a way where you know the God who loves me, my Father in heaven, can do anything. Imagine kids on the playground bragging about their dads. My dad can do that. My dad can beat up your dad, right? You know, having those kind of arguments. Well, well, this is, here is the father. I mean, look at who your father is. Look at who he is. Why do you get so anxious? Why do you get so worried and frustrated and thinking, oh, I pull my hair out. I don't, I don't know what I'm going to do about this issue in my life. I don't. Take your concerns to your father. Nothing is impossible for him. If you have come as a child to your father and said, here is what is causing me all of these issues. Will you take this from me? And he chooses to leave that issue in your life. It's because he has a good purpose and you need to trust him because he's fully capable of removing it. Okay. So we need to trust and find security and peace in the, in the reality that we worship a God who can do the impossible. Nothing is impossible for him. The word doesn't even have meaning for God. Trust in him and be at peace. And then the second truth we need to take from this. You have a savior who can sympathize with your weakness. When the Son of God was only God, he could not sympathize with weakness. He had never been weak. He could not sympathize or identify with being meek and fragile. God is not meek. God is not fragile. He's the very opposite of that. God does not experience temptation to do evil. He's purely good. He sees through any temptation. There is no temptation for evil to go. So only by becoming a human being did Jesus now uh, enter into a state where he identifies and can sympathize with you in the midst of your struggles and temptation. You walk around and you say, nobody else really understands what I'm going through. Well, as God, he knows what you're going through perfectly. And as man, he can sympathize. If he was just man, he could do the one. If he was just God, he could do the other. But as the God man, he can do it both. He knows everything you're going through better than you do. And he can sympathize as a true human being. Hebrews 4, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
No, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. What should all of this move us to do? Run to Christ. Run to the throne of grace with your burdens and your issues and your anxieties and your hurts. Talk to the God-man who loves you and gave his life for you. He is able to sympathize and he has all power to do good for you. I hope you love this Savior. I hope you trust this Savior. He is worthy of your heart and your allegiance. Amen? Amen. 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 All right, let's pray.